This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Colt discusses his careers as a private investigator and a locksmith. After working in these fields for many years, he had a minor surgery that turned out wrong and forced him to search for careers more suitable to his health. Then we talked to DeAndre, who lost his father to cancer and soon found himself walking in his father's shoes. Here are their stories. Good afternoon, this is Colt Kaufman, and I'm in Bandera, Texas, or Bandera County, Texas. I am a retired private investigator and uh, a serial entrepreneur. I've owned a dozen different businesses through my life, and... uh, I grew up in the hill country, but I spent about 25 years of my life living on Galveston Island, a very unique environment, lots and lots of work down there. The type of investigation work I was in was pretty specialized. I was a uh, defense investigator for the defense team. And uh, what that equates to is when a person gets charged, the state's got all the access in the world to information, investigators and all that. And the defense normally doesn't have anything. So they bring in their own investigator and that was me. And um, I looked into the cases and and did the background investigations on them. I've worked a couple or three uh, capital murder cases and and, uh, some casualty events and things like that. And I did some civil work as well, but in 2010, basically 10 years ago from now, right around this time, I had a uh, unscheduled surgery. I mean, well, they, well, they scheduled it, um, but it was supposed to be a minor situation where I'd be in and be out and back to work in five days. And uh, well, it was at the Houston VA hospital and here I am 10 years later, um, still disabled they inadvertently severed the nerve to my left lung so i went from being highly active um very very independent working 12 14 hours a day and on call 24 7 um and dealing with people some that were felons and everything else and being a licensed bodyguard at the time to pretty much uh, living at about 12,000 feet with the reduction of one lung. um, It became a struggle and they also damaged my vocal cords in the process. So I couldn't speak above a whisper for almost two years. So in the course of things, um, finances cratered. I had to shut down two different businesses in Galveston that I owned, Um, ended up terribly in debt and uh, ultimately I ended up moving off the island and moving back to the hill country which is a good thing I I enjoy the hill country I'm from here but I've been on the island for so long and had so many good friends down there Um, and and I still travel down there to visit but since I can't get out and do the physical hard work and risk work anymore 
the um, last three years or so, four years, I've shifted my focus and gotten into acting and writing. And um, that's pretty much where things are at now. I still do some consulting on the PI work, but, but not on anything regular, um, just enough to keep my registration open. Let me ask you something. Uh, sure. For, for your work as a private investigator for the defense, were you also uh, forced to testify in, in, in the cases you, you investigated? I could be called in to testify, but the majority of my work was really just going over the case and looking at what could be done, needed to be done. And sometimes it, it's not a matter of, of proving the person wasn't guilty. Sometimes it's a matter of, of showing mitigating circumstances, for example. One particular case years ago was a, a young family, and the uh, man had shaken the baby and had shaken baby syndrome, and, and ultimately the infant died. And, and straight up on the case was, is, is that they, this was a death penalty case. And what we were able to find out that, that was not out in the news and people did not know about is that the underlying background behind it was that they lived in a house with 20 people living in the house. Uh, some of them were illegal aliens, but they lived in a house with way, way too many people in the house and it made it somewhat of a pressure cooker and and the kid had was trying to get the baby quiet and he ended up getting life but he he ended up the death penalty got taken off the table he's never going to be out again sadly it, it's a shame but those sort of things is what a lot of the investigation sometimes boils down to on another case that I worked, we had an individual who's charged in a homicide and uh, my investigator out of Beaumont and myself worked the case and, and um, we were able to prove that he in fact was not the person who killed him and uh, the people who committed the crime, we were able to identify and the client had been in jail 18, 20 months at this time and was coming up to trial and um, in the following weeks, he was released and completely exonerated. So it's that had to be satisfying. It is. It it really, really, truly is. Um, and I I enjoyed it a lot. And I'm an instructor, was an instructor, as well as as practicing. And you know, I did not personally get involved. Very, very rarely would I handle a domestic cheating spouse cases I they just weren't my cup of tea and and a lot of times what I found was if one's cheating the other one is too and I've found that frequently they like to throw the other partner partner under the bus when it comes time for child custody and make wild allegations against the other party and and one of the things that I've found to be true is not a hundred percent of the time, but very, very frequently when the guy says she's a drug addict or she says he's a drug addict, my first question to them, and you did drugs with them for how many years? And they look at me with a blank stare and it's like, no, this, this isn't a trick question. You know that your partner is doing drugs and it is very probable that you were too. I just need to know before I take the case and, and to what degree. And, uh, that's just, that's kind of the thing with dealing with some of these things are they're interesting cases. They evolve and develop a life of their own. And when it comes to marital matters and money and, and custody issues, throwing the partner under the bus is, a pretty common ploy, unfortunately. And I think the children pay off, pay for it in the end, which is really, really sad. How long were you a private investigator before you had to 
to stop doing that type of work? Uh, well, it goes way back. I, I have been in, in both the investigation and security industry for over 40 years. I also, in addition to the investigation agency, I am a master locksmith and owned a locksmith company. And um, I had gotten into that in the security industry earlier. And back about, I guess, 15, 17 years ago, something like that, the state of Texas required that locksmiths be licensed under the state private security board. Well, that's also who regulates private investigators. I spent a term as a municipal judge, very, very young. Um, I was 23 and a municipal judge. And um, I had the legal background and experience and education for it. So when I put in for a license, I applied for a combination license that allowed me to do electronic access control, locksmith, and a private investigation agency. So it was, it, it was a unique industry. And, uh, and Galveston is a, a super, super unique place that all of the overlaps between the two industries, um, a lot of people don't know. The locksmith is kind of a quiet guy in the corner and you don't see a, a lot or people don't think very much of the locksmith. But you have to understand that a locksmith in your town has access to everything. We live in a world of no locked doors. That's what we're paid to do is be able to defeat them. And there's a discipline involved in it to learn the trade, but you also end up in some pretty sketchy places. You end up a lot of times working on safes and vaults for people who are on the wrong side of the law. You end up working on safes, vaults, cell doors, and high security locks for the law themselves. And you know some of the lawmen that do some things that are kind of out there on their own and they've got safes that they need worked on too. So it's an interesting background between that and the PI work overlapping because of the um, everybody used to tell me, oh, the PI stuff is really cool. Um, you know, I bet you really like that and, and find that to be interesting. In reality, I did a very, very good job of it and very thorough. But as far as the real, truly day-to-day -day interesting things that popped up, that was the locksmith business. That is a really, really interesting business. You can get called out at 2 o'clock in the morning to go somewhere and end up with a gun to your head because you're opening the door for somebody's ex-spouse who just lied to you or whatever. And, and fortunately, that's a felony um, to do that, uh, to procure a locksmith to do that in this state. And there's protections for it, but you can end up very, very quickly on the bad end of a, of a deal. Um, I learned very, very young about doing that. I've been at the wrong end of a gun a few times on, on that, and it's uh, always involved domestic. Well, domestics and evictions, there's, there's times when those have turned somewhat dangerous. But the interesting and crazy stuff I ran into, believe it or not, more of it was in the locksmith than in the PI. Now, there's, there's crazy stuff in the PI stuff, but the locksmith stuff, yeah, you see crazy just about every week. <laughs> that could be scary, I imagine. It is, it is. And and being that I was trained and and PI as well as a locksmith, the last several years that I worked, I never traveled anywhere where I wasn't carrying a gun anyway. And and I've always managed to de defuse things and get them de-escalated quickly but it's it, it's an interesting world out there when you're in an occupation that works in the dark all the time and both of those kind of overlap in that area that there's what goes on in the daytime and then there's what goes on when the rest of the world is sleeping let's talk a little bit about your surgery and the severing of the of the uh the nerve to your lung 
did you have to go through physical training after that happened? Uh, I, you know, I imagine there was something that you had to do with your breathing. I have been through the ringer on that. The, um, the problem is, is I was a private pilot. I had an airplane and, um, I suddenly started developing split vision and couldn't pick out which one of the two images I was seeing was the right one. And that was a concern. So I went in and, uh, there's a, a deal they call the subclavian steel syndrome, which says that your subclavian artery is blocked off and it's stealing blood from your brain. And I didn't test in the laboratory and the test that they did did not show that I had that, but the vascular surgeons in Houston at the VA made a clinical diagnosis and went ahead and did it. And what we found out later, once I moved up here to the hill country and got into a different VA with a new doctor is that I actually had epilepsy to begin with. And they did a bypass off basically off my heart to my left shoulder. And I tell my kids, they put a PVC pipe in me. And in the process of doing that, they managed to damage the phrenic nerve that makes your diaphragm move in and out. So my x-ray, you see a whole lung on the right side and a half lung on the left side because the diaphragm doesn't pull down over there. And, and we're still in appeals and it's still 10 years it's over 10 years out now um and the thing is is, is the va says well yeah too too bad and we're sorry to hear that but uh you know it, it it happens and i'm like well no it doesn't happen that was a student who did that they misdiagnosed it to begin with but yeah i've been in in different types of physical therapy but i'm I'm limited as to what I can do. Like I say, it's it's a it's an interesting situation to be in. It it was a life changer and a game changer for me. I've had to slow down an awful lot in the last decade and and learn to appreciate things. And I've taken up writing and I took up acting. And that that's given me a lot of relief into getting back to doing something. I'm not making any money, but um, it it does keep me occupied doing something I can do. My going back into the field is is not an option. So, well, before we we talk about your uh, writing and, and acting career, uh, you mentioned that you had your surgery at the VA. When did you serve? I was in the Air Force, 1975 to 79. I, I enlisted right at the very end of Vietnam and I went in on a deferred enlistment. So my active duty date was actually after Vietnam had the few months after Vietnam had gotten out before I actually went active duty, but I had two years reserve and four years active. I was an aircraft refueler and, uh, I refueled, I was a hot refueler, which meant that, that we were refueling fighter type aircraft while they were still running, uh, doing sorties and you go up under the airplane hookup and, and get it and get the plane back in the air as quick as you can. And the bad thing about being in POL, which is petroleum oil and lubricants is that the exposure to toxins is extremely high. And some of my medical issues that I've got are related to my chemical exposure in the service. And um, that's, that's what my doctor contends. Um, the VA says otherwise, but they're, we're, we're going around and around over that. But there's just an awful lot of uh, exposures um, working in that field. But I loved my time in the service. I really did. I'd, I'd go in today if they'd let an old man like me in. Okay, let's go. Let's move into your film and acting career. Uh, you, you said you're a writer, so you write scripts. Uh, have you had anything produced? I have not. Um, I have a book that's out called Make a Better Life Today. I, I put that book out, 
as a very, very short book, an easy download. I recommend for people to just download it on Kindle. And it's basically telling young people how to, how to have a better life, how to go out and create the illusion. If you want to be somewhere, then, then look like that's where you want to be and, and be with the kind of people that are going there and that'll get you there. So I've, I've got that out. I've got two other books that are midway. I'm hoping to finish both of them this year. Right now they're on Wattpad. Um, I have a Wattpad account under Colt Kaufman and uh, one of them is population 327 and that's based on my youth as a outsider moving into a, a small town with a population of 327 and uh, the other one is the man with the golden touch and that is about the intricacies of the locksmith business that I ran into in Galveston and I have a screenplay that is in the works. It's one of those 10 year projects. I've written it wrong several times, but I have a screenplay that's based on the homicide that I worked over between Texas and Louisiana, um, where we found the individuals who actually committed the crime and got our guy out. So I decided that I needed a little more background on the screenwriting to see what I could learn about the backside of the movie industry to better my writing. So I started taking some small roles and, and non-speaking roles. And uh, I've ended up doing a half a dozen uh, productions in the last couple of years. Um, and, and I'm looking at some right now. I am uh, looking at playing the role of a sheriff in East Texas coming up in the spring on a movie that's coming out that just went up on, uh, I believe, Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Um, I think it's Kickstarter, but that's the movie, Albatross. Great people, been talking to them, and and um, hopefully I'll be playing the part of the sheriff in that. And that's a, a uh, pilot run. They want to uh, do a series off of it, and I've done that. And I think you've interviewed um, Bill, Bill Foster. Yes, Bill Foster. Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, Bill's a great guy, and and uh, Patrick Lescaro. Um, I interviewed I, him next week. <laughs> great guy, super super guy. Um, I I went to I actually went and auditioned for a part in uh, a movie they're doing right now, the Chance and Circumstance Project, and. Uh, I, I went down to the audition and, and I didn't realize it, but Bill Foster was also there. So I ran into both of them and, and I was joking with them in the room because they had a cameraman in there for the audition. And I'm like, well, that's pretty funny. Y'all have all been on my podcast. The only person that hadn't is a cameraman. Uh, I need to, <laughs> need to get with him and get him on. But now it's, it's opened up a lot. I've, I went and took, um, classes at uh, Performing Arts San Antonio under Paul Tender and took the adult acting class and then the master's class. And uh, I found out, and it, it's an interesting deal, that it's really crazy because I was talking to somebody yesterday who's, who's a young guy, young actor. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the other people that you have, have interviewed, uh, Patrick Haney or Har Harney, I haven't uh, interviewed him yet, but I hope to. You, you haven't? Oh, he's a, he's a great guy, great guy. And I was talking to him the other day, and here's what I found out that's really surprising. I'm 63 years old, and I've been doing this since I was 59 or so and just barely into it and learning every day. But what I have learned that's really peculiar is that Every show, movie, or project you look at has an old guy in it. You know, the dad, the grandpa. There's, there's an old guy everywhere. And you look at it, and you look at the people my age who are successful. Well, they're not going to work on the lower-paying, entry-level productions at all. They don't have to. They've done it. They're retired. And and they've made their money and, and gone. The other people my age 
um, fall into a category of those who've given up. And then there's a few of us that are still out here doing it and just got into it or have gotten back into it. And when you go to the casting calls, when you look at the roles for the 20 and 30 years old, 20 and 30 year old people, they're up against a hundred people for the same role. When I go in there, there might be 10, five or 10 people just because of that difference in things. It, it's an interesting, it, it's not nearly as competitive as you would think that it would be. Um, and that's all I can attribute it to is, is to either people that are very, very successful, uh, not taking on the smaller projects or, and people that have just simply decided it wasn't their cup of tea and moved on to other things. So, and I've been, been very, very blessed with the opportunities that I've gotten and the people I've worked with have all been super. And, and it's not completely foreign to me. My father was a cinematographer for 50 years. Um, I grew up in a studio, um, he had his own studio. As a matter of fact, Farrah Fawcett's first TV commercial was shot by him for Glastron Boats out of Austin. And Toby Hooper, he did the Tex Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was a UT student and used to come to the house in my dad's studio back then. It's just something I never delved into once I got to be a rebellious teenager and left. So kind of going kind of going full circle now so <laughs> well that's interesting that you have that history and i imagine you have some really fond memories of living with your father and being at the studio and meeting these people who later became famous yeah oh yeah yeah it, it it's interesting it's it's like oh you know i was just a kid i knew those person those people back then so yeah and and it's kind of kind of spark things so i've i've gotten the bug and and uh, so far it's working out really really good i i've really had a lot of fun i've met some really great people and um i've, I've gotten into some projects that, that uh have just been phenomenal I've, I've really had a a good time and it doesn't make me feel useless i can actually get out here and do this and it's not physical it's it's very mentally um, challenging but as far as uh, the physical aspect of getting injured or anything like that that's not that's not a problem for me so um, it's it's worked out really really good and kind of given me a, a second take on things because it it, it is I have to admit it is a, a pretty depressing scenario when you find yourself and you've been active for 30 40 years of running 24 7 and on call and and in a really really stressed environment to all of a sudden you can't do anything it's uh it, it's tough so now now i feel great this year's been been really super i'm looking for things to really take off good um I've got the podcast. I got a buddy of mine, an old business partner. We've done some stuff together and he says, you know, you need to be an influencer. You need to go out there and get you a podcast going. Uh, there, there's nothing to it. You ought to do that. Well, now I know what it is. Now I know what it is involved in becoming a podcaster. So, uh, he set me up for a lot of work. I didn't know. Uh, so, but I have the podcast, uh, the good life. And, um, basically I, I target to interview people that are doing good things, different things, unique things, and having a good life doing well. I've got some people I've got lined up to interview here pretty shortly that are authors that have put out two or three books that are on the bestseller list and doing well and some people like that and just people in different occupations. So it, it's, it's been interesting and, and I've enjoyed it. Of course, Steven's put me in touch with, with a ton of people. Steve um, Joyner. Yes. Yes. And, uh, talking with folks and getting lined up and, and, uh, 
it's gotten me further out than just my local, you know, area here in Texas. So, um, that's been interesting and, and I've really enjoyed it. How long have you been doing the podcast? Oh, I've only been podcasting 60 days, maybe. Oh, you're a newbie. Okay. I am a newbie. So, so I imagine there is a, lot, a, a huge learning curve for you. I've been doing mine for a year now, and it, you know, it took me a while to, get, to hit my stride. But uh, hang in there. It gets, you know, it gets easier. Yeah, and, and I have found that, that yeah, I, I actually enjoy it. Now, it, I was stressed by it when I first started it. I was really, really stressed. Um, and then I realized that it's really a whole lot easier than you make it out to be when you go into it because you worry about what to ask and what you're doing on the on the podcast and it's like you you had told me when we were talking before to just tell the story and and do that and i've learned that hey you know what if i shut up and let them talk uh i don't have to worry about doing anything wrong (laughs) so yeah i even tried to cut myself out of the interview in post production if you know if i can delete a sentence and still have the interview make sense and you know i'm, I'm there i will delete my sentence i understand so, yeah I, I, i'm the same way i try to keep mine narrowed down to about 20 to 30 minutes and honestly it's because i am a busy person myself um even though i'm not employed and occupied and all that i'm i'm busy i've got a lot going on and the first thing I look at when I look at a YouTube or look at a podcast is first thing I want to see is how many minutes does this run? I do not have 120 minutes to listen. And so I try to keep mine focused and, and down around 20, 30 minutes and light. As things progress and it gets further along, then I'll expand them out. I've had a couple of the interviews that have have gone over to 45 minutes, almost an hour because the conversation went very, very well. And it was interesting guest. Um, and, and when it clicks like that, you might as well just roll with it and go. But I I did have the advantage. I have a very, very dear friend of mine, um, up in Georgetown who had a complete setup for podcasting just sitting in his warehouse he had ordered it for somebody and they actually had passed on before it was delivered and he just had it he says oh, i've got everything you need I'll, I'll send it out fedex to you tomorrow and two days later i've got boom mics i've got everything the whole nine yards equalizer soundboard uh i've got i've got more than i know how to operate i'm learning well, that's good. Uh, very nice to have that connection. It, it really was. That, that helped an awful lot. And then, you know, and ironically, it's, it's funny because half of my interviews are by phone. And I don't use any of that stuff. It's kind of weird. Um, we're, we're on one of my iRig mics right now um, that I've got hooked up through the PC so it has a better quality sound to it. But half of the interviews I've been doing have been over the cell phone, um, on both ends, my end and their end. And then I take it to the edit deck and and work on it and clean it up as much as I can. Um, because see, I live out in the middle of nowhere. I'm, oh gosh, nearest town for me is 20 minutes away. And and it's a small town. It doesn't have but a couple of thousand people in it. And that's Bandera, but I live out in the county um on some acreage got my horse and stuff like that so i do most of my interviews over the phone and i got everything all geared up and ready to go and i also thought when i got into podcasting that it was a i I was thinking more like it was a youtube thing where there was a visual component and then i found out well it's not it's just audio it's like oh okay well that that saves a lot of trouble right there so and I, I've really enjoyed it. Mostly, I just enjoy meeting people and, and the different different folks that I get to talk to and and um, stories I get to hear. As you know, it, it's kind of a neat neat deal to get out there and, and uh, listen to people and share. And and I'm a big proponent of of positive things and people doing well 
I, I'm not a big hippie type. I, I, I like to see people work hard and get what they may get what they worked for. And, and I, I think that's the best way to a productive life. I've been on the board uh, here in this county of the Boys and Girls Club for a while and support seeing our youth come up in a, an economy and an environment that is safe and going to be safer for them and to make them better citizens, better, better people in the community for themselves. You don't have to, you don't have to fight life. Um, and it's, it's just one of those things that a lot of kids don't learn until later they grow up in a high stress environment and, and they are raised to believe that it's a struggle and it, it doesn't have to be, you can, you can do a lot of things to lessen that load and make yourself more successful. Hello, my name is DeAndre Wilson. Um, I'm calling from Evansville, Indiana. And my story uh, really has so much to do with life and experiences. But um, basically, um, here in Evansville, Indiana, I roll a 230-pound tractor tire around the city of Evansville to, with three objectives in mind, I should say. Fitness community conversation and um, overall just mental toughness and and talk about mental health. So those are why I rolled the tire. But my dad started it way before I did. That's where I picked it up from. Um, he was rolling the tire while he was battling stage four liver and colon cancer. But he, you know, he was just doing it to take his mind off of the hardship he was going through. He wasn't really focused on, you know, community conversation and, you know, trying to really make an impact, even though he was. He just wasn't really paying attention to that. So, you know, while he was living, he was rolling that tire and people in the community would say, Hey, DeAndre, we saw your dad and we love what he's doing. I just got that all the time. And so um, it let, it gave me a sense of, you know, like for, fulfillment for my dad. And I know he was, ha was happy to do it. And people just love talking to him. Um, I would say that, you know, my dad would roll that tire every day after chemo treatment. He would come home and, and he would um, get something to eat and then he, he would take off. Um, and I admire that because he knew that, you know, unfortunately he was gonna lose his life to cancer, but he kept going, you know, he refused to go without a fight. And so I admire that. And, and, and knowing that has helped me to cope with him not being here. I mean, we all grieve in, di in different ways, but to know that has, has helped me. So he's been gone now officially for five years but for four of those years that same tractor tire sat in the garage and I didn't do anything with it but at this point I had my catering business going and my brother and I who he, I started with him and we had to put that on pause and so I was just kind of like do I go back to the corporate world or, or what do I do um, and, and I was like, you know, one of the things I need to do is get in shape because I'm not where I want to be financially or mentally. And so I was like, I got to get a gym membership. And then it dawned on me that I remember my dad always saying that the tire is a full body workout. And so I tell you what, I got it out the garage one night and I started rolling and I've been, I've been doing it for a total, total of nine months now. Here to be nine months in December. And during that process, I rolled the tire at night uh, to build confidence and, and the fear of dropping it or damaging something. And I also wanted to be alone um, with the tire as well because I knew the reception my dad was getting and I knew that the same thing was gonna happen to me. So. That's why I did it at night, but through that confidence and, and building that muscle, um, one day, um, it was a nice 60 degree weather day and I just took off and went around the neighborhood and 
from there sparked so many news articles and magazines and uh, you name it. I've been been blessed to be featured in a lot of different publications. I'm now also a sponsored athlete. Um, I never thought in a million years that would happen. I don't even know how to dribble a basketball nor shoot a basketball, but my community is referring to me as an athlete. So that whole experience has been been great. When I first started, I weighed 235 pounds. Now I'm down to 210 and it's just been eight months. So this process has, has taken me through so so much positive. I mean, to, to have my weight under control, to have my uh, mental health really under control. Um, I feel good every day when I wake up. I jump up and I'm ready to have a lot of energy. I'm eating extremely well. Um, so, you know, that's all the good stuff and that's the story. But we also have to talk about the negative side. Unfortunately, you know, rolling this tire, I have been pulled over by the police. Five different experiences, three of them, you know, you, you just learn as you go. But the last two a uh, police officer cheered me on and shook my hand and told me he lost his, his mother to cancer. And the other uh, police officer brought me a Powerade. So there, there's some there's some still good there, but um, I, I just put those five experiences together because I was pulled over. I also, as I'm rolling through the community, I also see like impact is so important and having trust for your neighbors and your community is so important. So as I'm rolling, you know, down the street and I may wave at someone this time and, you know, smile at someone that time. The next time they see me, they'll come off their porch and, and we want to have, you know, we'll have a conversation just, you know, about what I'm doing and who I am. And then we, we're starting to build, you know, a little bit of trust there. Well, the next time I come back, uh, those same individuals will come off their porch and they'll help me roll or flip the tire and then they will um, share with me some pretty heavy topics. And, and I mean, I've heard it all at 27, rolling this tire, 27 years old, rolling this tire around the community. I would say I started rolling around in the neighborhoods around month number four. So from month number four on up to where I'm at this point, I've been told some pretty heavy things that it's like, how do I deal with those? But um, I was, you know, I, I wasn't asked to be in this position, but, but I am. So um, I could give some examples of things I've heard. Uh, I'm sure you use your imagination, and you won't be wrong. But people tell me that they're addicted to drugs, and you know, abusing drugs, and they don't know how to keep a job, and they're struggling with their relationships. I've got all kinds of colorful things uh, said to me, but um, I guess it takes the uniqueness and an icebreaker of a tire to get those type of situations and topics to come out, which, you know, at this point, I'm happy to do that. At first, I was like, well, what did I sign up for? But um, I'm here now, and, and this is what I do. This is my second endeavor um, that I'm going to start and keep going. You know, it's not about me anymore, even though, I'm on this journey, but it's also about the people that um, that see this. It's about the impact, and so that's been one of, one of my real major focuses: is impact. Really trying to impact those in a positive way to, you know, help them. And and one thing that I have learned, I will say this, is that meeting with these different people in the community, I've learned to to show up, shut up, and listen. And people will find their answer just to have someone to, to bounce ideas off of, whether I am kind of, you know, you know, responding back in the conversation or they just say it out loud. And this has been a beautiful process this whole entire time. So that that's my story. You know, the Keep Rolling campaign. I'm working on a documentary about the Keep Rolling campaign and the, the entire process of it. And um, it is something. It is definitely something. So that's my story here in Evansville, Indiana. That's that's what I do as a 27-year-old young professional, trying to get my first business back up and going. But, you know, that that's what I do. 
Have you used this as an opportunity to fundraise for cancer awareness or anything like that? So I've broken this thing down into phases. So phase two, which starts in March of 2020, I will roll, I will set a a GoFundMe account and people can donate to the GoFundMe account. And I'll say, okay, this month I plan to roll 70 miles and you can contribute to that GoFundMe. Uh, That money will be used for um, either a nonprofit I'm rolling for or a family that is uh, in need of some extra financial assistance. Okay. Um, you, you, You mentioned that you had a bakery. Is that right? Yeah, my brother and I, we started a catering business together, and it's been successful. We had to put it on hold, but it's called Turntable. In your community, obviously there's nobody else rolling a tire around, but <laughs> um, you're obviously now a celebrity in a way. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm, very, I'm a very humble person, but yes, I am kind of like a local celebrity, and I tell you what, I can't go to Walmart anymore or Myers or the mall with someone yelling, oh my gosh, look, it's the tire guy. It never fails. What would you say has been the most rewarding aspect of, of this whole ordeal? I mean, you lost your father and that was tragic, but since then, what has been the most rewarding aspect? To, for me, it's, it's been so many different rewards, but the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is being able to keep my emotions intact, being able to process information and to deal with things in a responsible way where I don't have to like outlash and attack if I don't, if I disagree with something or hear something incorrectly, I'm able to be calm because I know if I am frustrated, I can just lay the tire down in my backyard and go get the sledgehammer and hit it about a hundred times. Have you ever thought of going to other cities and doing this? Absolutely. I would I would love to. And that'll probably take place in maybe phase three or four. Um, once I can get like a truck and haul it around or roll it, but then I'd have to get like maybe a police escort. But I'm definitely open to going to other cities and states. The interesting thing is, and what I had to learn early on is when I'm rolling the tire and I say, okay, I'm going to go, you know, four miles, five miles today. And I I don't know why, you know, you got to just, you got to process information. But when you go to a destination, you know, whether it's three miles, four miles, five miles, you got to come back. And when I explain to people that they think that I have a truck that I'm rolling the tire to and I'm just going to drive back home. No, no, no. That defeats the purpose. So um, mental toughness is key when I'm rolling that tire from destination to destination and being able to lock in. What that means for me is to it's almost this zoning out kind of thing I do where I got my headphones in. I'm kind of zoned out um, and I'm just rolling and I silence that noise of, oh man, I wish I was at home laying on the couch. I wish I was eating something, you know, relaxing, but it's like, no, I'm doing this for a purpose, for for a cause. So it's important that, you know, you lock in because it's so important. Why don't you talk a little bit about your plans for your documentary have you begun filming or are you in the fundraising stage so the director and i we have began filming and we've got a great deal of footage um so much is just coming out of the woodwork where it's like oh yeah make sure we record that make sure we record that um i've been in two parades here in, in evansville so we had to get that i did a 5k with the tire so I got that footage. So there's, it's just been so much is popping up that we're noticing that's like, oh, make sure we get that. So we started filming. We started getting a lot of testimonials as well. And we're actually going on break from shooting uh, so we can edit everything. And then we'll start back. And I've actually got a lot of uh, testimonials and interviews I want to do for the, for the documentary set up. That's pretty good that we'll get some, some good footage. Um, but shooting a documentary has been has been a, quite the experience because now uh, my director let me borrow his GoPro, and so now I'm conscious of 
do I need to bring the GoPro? I should bring the GoPro. You know, I have the battery pack on me and, you know, so I want to make sure I capture everything because it's those real life stories that I get that will help me tell the story of the entire process of the tire. And I give you a quick example. So there was a gentleman yesterday during the parade that stopped me and he said, I lost my mom to cancer last month. But when we saw you rolling that tire, um, it made us feel that much better. And we were able to cope with losing her a little bit better. That right there is why I do this. Hearing stories like that. Now, what was written on the tire or is written on the tire? So on one side of the tire, it says cancer sucks. Um, on the other side, my dad had, it was something, but um, the elements took it off. So what I'm going to do here, here shortly is have one of my uh, good friends. He's going to put cancer sucks on both sides of it with no ribbons or anything like that. Just the words. Um. How about any uh, social media, websites? You have uh, places that people can go now to, to learn about you and maybe um, help fund your, your documentary? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're on YouTube, and uh, on the YouTube page is Keep Rolling Campaign. I've got two snippets. Um, I'm going to post two snippets as we speak on there to kind of draw that awareness. Um, but people can follow me on Twitter at DeAndre D. Wilson. Same thing with Instagram. And then I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn, DeAndre Wilson. Uh, the cool thing is, is that my default picture for all of those platforms is me standing next to the tire. So you really can't miss me. Yeah, you're that guy with the tire, aren't you? Yeah, the guy with the tire and, and then default picture. So, but uh, but yeah, so that's how people can reach me and people can can keep up with the progress of the documentary. But once the documentary is done, I plan on having screenings um, around Evansville. Uh, if someone wants me to come to their university or wherever, I don't mind traveling. I think I'd be a great experience. Uh, hopefully that happens. And then another goal I have with the documentary is to enter it in almost every, within reason, every film festival I possibly can. 